Hello, everybody, and welcome to this special edition of the Agenda Dialogues. I'm Amanda Russo. I'm going to be your moderator for the next 30 minutes. We have a lot to cover and a lot of very important topics, so we're going to jump right in. Today, we're speaking about how businesses and governments can deliver on the promise of climate action. COP26 was just five months ago, and we saw a slew of climate commitments and millions funneled into important financing. But then, just one month ago, Russia invaded Ukraine. The war is already a humanitarian disaster, and in addition to the human cost, leaders around the world are warning that the stakes are high when it comes to the next stages of the energy transition. We're midway to COP27 in Egypt, and there's a lot of questions on what to do next and where to go. The two people I have joining me today are going to help us answer some of these questions. We have Alex Sharma joining us from London, the COP26 president. Thank you for joining us. And we have our managing director, Gim Hui Neo, from the Center of Climate and Nature here at the World Economic Forum. Alec, I'm going to come to you first for this, for the first question. Will the crisis and its impact on energy flows speed up or slow down the energy transition? Uh, Amanda, firstly, to say thank you to uh, WEF for having me on. Uh, look, I mean, you know, you're absolutely right. The world has changed uh, uh, for, the, for, for the worse uh, uh, since uh, the uh, illegal and, and, frankly, brutal invasion of Ukraine by Putin's regime. Uh, and I don't think anyone can be failed to be moved by the, the, the terrible images that we're seeing coming out of that war um, uh, you know, every day. And of course, uh, the international community stands shoulder to shoulder with the, the courageous people of, of Ukraine. And you talked about a humanitarian crisis, absolutely, and we, we have to address that and provide support. But of course, um, there is also uh, a uh, issue in terms of global energy markets. Um, and that is, again, something that you know, every country is having to grapple with right now. I've just come uh, this afternoon from Paris. I was at the International Energy Agency uh, ministerial meeting. Uh, and of course, this was sort of front and central of that discussion. Um, and what I did say at uh, the, the meeting uh, to colleagues is that clearly you know, every country is going to have to look to see how they meet uh, that acute need uh, now. Uh, clearly, uh, you know, governments are going to have to make sure that lights stay on, that people's homes are, are heated, that businesses are able to operate. But I also made the point that, um, you know, ahead of COP26, um, we managed to get 90% of the global economy committed to uh, net zero. And in fact, some of those commitments came at COP as, as well. So as countries make uh, those decisions in terms of uh, energy going forward, they also need to keep the medium and, and long-term view in, in, in sight and, and make sure that they are staying committed to the net zero commitments that they have made. Um, and uh, you know, clearly, we are seeing the benefits of having homegrown renewables, homegrown uh, clean energy uh, uh, right now. So in the UK, for instance, you know, we've built a big offshore wind sector. Um, we've gone from 40% uh, of the coal in the UK coming from, uh, sorry, of, of electricity coming from coal uh, back in 2012. Uh, to a few percentage points uh, now. Uh, and uh, certainly I can see that uh, we will see an acceleration in re renewables. We will see an acceleration in, in clean energy as well. Uh, and I think it's worth pointing out that when this takes place, it is, of course, good for the environment. But it also you know, has a big economic benefit in terms of creating jobs as well. 
So um, yes, we will see, I'm quite sure, a accelerated push on renewables. Uh, and uh, at the end of the day, we will end up, I hope, with not just an environmental, but an economic dividend as well. Thank you, Alec. And so, Kim Hui, over to you. Um, Alec talked about an acceleration. Um, what are your thoughts or some of the next steps of the energy transition? So first, my heart goes out to all those who have been impacted uh, by the situation, uh, the current crisis that we are confronted with. Um, I think we need to... Uh, it's a humanitarian crisis, and we have to support all multilateral efforts uh, to uh, help the people on the ground. Uh, at the same time, uh, we also want to reduce collateral damage uh, from, from the crisis, right? Uh, on energy, I agree with uh, Alok, right? Uh, we need to see how we can step up on the transition uh, towards uh, renewable sources of energy, right? Uh, and continue to push on uh, to address uh, climate challenge. Mm. And, and stepping up was a, was a big part of what we saw back in November at COP26. Um, Alec, obviously, this is a big part of, of your existence for the past many years. And I'm sure, you know, with the conclusion of, you know, the climate, uh, the Glasgow Climate Pact being signed on and the 1.5C warming target, you know, within reach, um, we know there was a lot of involvement from the public and private sector. But what I'd like to ask you is, you know, for you, what was the role of businesses and, and how did businesses contribute to that Glasgow Climate Pact? Yes. Uh, so, Amanda, I mean, the Glasgow Climate Pact, um, uh, I mean, I do think it was a, uh, a historic uh, achievement. I mean, you know, even in a pretty fractured world last year, it's obviously got worse this year, but even in a pretty fractured world last year, we managed to get consensus with almost 200 countries signing up to a, um, a really strong set of commitments. The issue now, of course, is to uh, push forward and make sure those commitments uh, turn into delivery and, and action. Um, but I do think COP26 uh, in Glasgow was one of the, the first COPs where there was a big focus on business. Uh, we had uh, lots of the business community uh, coming together. And I think the reason for this is because we have got to that inflection point where uh, governments, businesses, civil society, uh, you know, effectively are singing from the same hymn sheet. They understand why it's important uh, that you need to take care of the climate and the environment at the same time as you're championing uh, growth. And that's why green growth uh, is uh, uh, you know, a big, big trend. Net zero is a, a big, big trend uh, right now. Um, and uh, you know, if, you, if you look at some of the commitments that uh, the business has made, um, we, had, uh, we were running campaigns on um, uh, clean energy. We were running campaigns on um, uh, uh, stopping deforestation. We were running uh, campaigns on zero emission vehicles. And in all of those areas, we had um, uh, sort of significant sign-ups from, from, from business. So uh, we had um, uh, 54 businesses and investors, big businesses and investors, uh, car manufacturers, signing up to the, the Glasgow Declaration on Zero Emission Cars and Vans. And uh, basically, we're, what we, they were signing up to was ending the sale of um, uh, ICE vehicles uh, in uh, 2035 in the big uh, leading markets, and 2040 in, 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 in other markets. Um, we had uh, commitments made by, by companies in terms of um, uh, you know, addressing the issue of deforestation. And we also had um, a significant number of, uh, of big financial institutions signing up to the Powering Pass Coal Alliance. But I think one of the biggest announcements from business was the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero. So 130 
trillion dollars of assets signing up to go to net zero by 2050. I mean, that is absolutely huge. I think that will grow. And um, I think that is the, the kind of the direction of travel. And so I do think business played a, a big, big role in terms of the momentum at COP. Uh, and, you know, last year I, um, you know, visited almost 40 countries. I spent a lot of time talking to governments, but also to businesses. And I can tell you that there are countries across the world where business is leading government on this clean growth agenda. And that's something that we need to see happening more and more, because ultimately it is going to require the real economy to help deliver on the commitments that were made in Glasgow. And I think delivering on these commitments and, and making them is obviously, you know, something that continues to make headline news and it's very encouraging to see this happening. But I think when we talk to friends and family who maybe not be in this, who may not be in these industries, may not be in government, they think, wow, 2050, that's really far. Like that seems like a long time in the future. So Kim Hui, coming to you, um, what do you think needs to be done to deliver a meaningful decarbonization like this decade? Because you have to lay the foundation now for 2050. And I think there's a lot of activities that maybe people just don't know is, is currently happening. Yes. And I would um, agree that the first steps have been made. Mm. It's an important one, right? Uh, the long-term commitment, right? Uh, and really now is translating ambition to action, right? Uh, but before I get into the detail, I do want to congratulate Alok. Right, uh, and his team, because I think uh, Glasgow did very successfully mobilize mm -hmm. the corporate and business finance uh, industries to engage governments, right, to push for bolder commitments. They themselves are also organizing efforts uh, bottom up okay. to drive towards uh, net zero, right. Uh, from an optimist point of view, I would say that right now the, the glass is 20% full. Okay. Lots more to do, right, uh, and really is to map out action plans, right? Um, reduce, how do we continue to cut emissions? Replace, how do we continue to invest into new sources of energy, new, new technologies, innovations uh, to, to support energy transition, but also to restore, conserve uh, and uh, carbon sinks in nature, both on land and in water, right? Uh, every company, every industry uh, group, uh, governments will need to map out their own action and deliverables. Uh, and the, the, clear, the, the, more, um, the more clarity they can have on the immediate actions to be taken, I think the, the faster they can get to where they need to be uh, 10, 15, 30 years from now. Mm. And I know one of the things that um, the forum did was the First Movers Coalition, and that was all about creating the market demand now to create the investment now so that the technologies can be developed so that way you can then test them and then use them. It's not an overnight thing. So it's it's definitely a very impressive thing that was mobilized for COP26. But I mean, you touched a little bit about the finance and you've come to the forum from a previous career in finance. Mm -hmm. So um, staying with you, tell us, you know, what do you think are some of the key actions on, you know, within the finance world that need to happen this year? Like, how do we protect the climate and the communities that are most vulnerable to some of the changes that are happening because of climate change? Yeah. So ESG is quite well understood among financial players. And ESG stands for Environment Social Governance Issue. It's quite well integrated uh, into operations of financial players, but it's still more regarded as a compliance area, right? Uh, the question is whether or not we can get the financial industry to also start looking at investing 
into ESG opportunities. So they need to find that sweet spot and ideally grow it where people, planet and profit can jointly prosper. Right? These opportunities exist, but we need to uh, put some spotlight on it and continue to uh, push uh, for, for, more, um, for growth in this area. The second thing that I want to highlight is really the notion of a green premium. Right? So CEOs have told us that today, uh, you don't really command a significant price premium for green goods and services. And the analogy that I would draw is for tech companies, they do command a premium when they're tech-enabled. Can we actually do the same for companies that are actually going green or contributing significantly to the climate transition? Right? If you think about carbon pricing, uh, the World Bank, IPCC have spoken about how you need at least carbon price to be $80 and above for us to get to a 2 degree, 1.5 degree pathway. Right? Uh, so to a large extent, we are still not fully pricing in the cost of carbon emissions. And I think one of the things we need to do uh, collectively is think about how we can price in and provide a premium uh, for green. Right? Uh, the, the forum is quite well known for its global risk report. Right? Uh, every year we publish the report and every year the same three risks are flagged out. Uh, climate change, biodiversity loss, ecosystem collapse and extreme weather events. Right, uh, and this have been flagged out as the top risks among business government leaders. The question is, are we actually pricing in well the risks in each of these areas? Right, because if we are, then really uh, companies who are best able to mitigate the risk mm -hmm. should become uh, the winners of tomorrow, business winners of tomorrow. Mm. And Alec, over over to you next uh, within the finance uh, questioning we have here. Um, you greatly increased the amount of climate finance going to developed countries. Um, however, you know, there's still been reports that there is this gap in the financing required for developing and, and low-income countries, that they need to be able to balance economic growth with the transition to net zero. So what's the role of the private sector in helping to close this gap? Yeah, Amanda, um, if I may just go back very briefly to an earlier really important point you made, which is that, uh, you know, we talk about net zero by the middle of the century, by, by 2050, uh, that is some way off. But of course, what we have also got is uh, commitments from countries in terms of how they will cut their emissions uh, by 2030. Uh, and in the UK, we have a very ambitious plan to cut emissions by, by 68%. Uh, by, by 2030, our, our nationally determined contribution. And one of the things that all countries agreed to do uh, was to look again at their uh, 2030 emission reduction targets and um, uh, come back uh, by the end of this year if, if necessary to see that you know those are then aligned with the the, the Paris temperature goals. Uh, and so, uh, I mean, the, the reason I say that is that the, this issue of you know you're talking about 2050, but actually what matters is what you do by 2030 and 2035 uh, and moving forward. So that is something that uh, we, of course this year are pushing forward countries to come forward with um, uh, more, more ambition. Um, on the point about finance, uh, you, you're absolutely right. Look, I mean, you know, there are lots of commitments that are, that are made uh, by governments, but I think we have to understand that ultimately, a lot of that is going to require finance to uh, deliver it. And yes, we got um, commitments in, in, in Glasgow. So, you know, ahead of Glasgow, we set out a, a climate finance uh, delivery plan, a, a, which is, um, uh, basically showing uh, how 
developed countries collectively will get to that $100 billion year goal that was set a long time ago, was due to be delivered by 2020. Uh, I think we accept that it's unlikely to be delivered in 2020. Um, I mean, that report will be produced by the OECD, so we, we will see where we come out. Uh, but what we did manage to do was to get commitments which show that, um, and I think with some, some credibility actually, that um, over the year, years 2021 to 2025, around half a trillion will be mobilized from uh, developed countries to support uh, developing nations. Uh, and the other thing that we agreed at COP is that developed countries will double the amount of money they put into adaptation by 2025. And you know that is a, a particularly acute issue for many countries which are on the front line of climate change, but actually are not responsible uh, for creating uh, uh, any uh, meaningful uh, emissions at all. But this is where the private sector is going to be so important. So, you know, one of the things that we also announced at COP26 was a just energy uh, transition partnership for South Africa, eight and a half billion dollars initially to support South Africa, to support ESCOM uh, with the move away from coal towards uh, clean energy. And uh, last week, I, I co-chaired a meeting with our, our uh, German ministerial colleague uh, on um, bringing together the G7, bringing together the multilateral development banks, uh, bringing together the private sector to see how we might be able to support collectively other countries as well, developing nations, uh, to um, make a clean energy transition. So, you know, the reality is that none of this is going to be possible until and unless we're able to deploy uh, private money, and that's what we are looking to do. And actually, uh, the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero has a strand of work where they're doing precisely that, looking to see how you know all these trillions that have been uh, committed to net zero by 2050, how do you mobilize that money into developing countries? And I do think actually the, the, the MDBs, the, the multilateral development banks, have a key role to play here as well, uh, looking for instance to uh, establish uh, first loss capabilities behind which the private sector can then come in and invest as well. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of work going on, I hope by the time we get to Sharm el-Sheikh, we can show some more uh, uh, country deals in the same way that we had uh, for, uh, for South Africa, uh, but there's a lot of hard work ahead. And ultimately to deliver on all of this, it does require finance. Mm. And let's, let's turn to some of that hard work ahead. You know, COP27, um, we're about halfway there. I think a lot of questions that have come up have been around leadership, the bold leadership that's needed from public and private sector to really move things forward. And we're seeing a lot of this. People are calling and urging their leaders to say, hey, we're behind you. Like, we're ready to go. Tell us what to do. So, Alec, kind of turning to you, you know, you're the president of the COP. What's your advice to CEOs, to heads of states, to heads of NGOs? You know, are there specific qualities for climate leaders that we need in today's world? Yes, I think first you 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 mentioned uh, uh, Egypt, and of course, I mean they are uh, they have the presidency for COP27. Uh, Sharm el Sheikh is, as you said, uh, a number of months away now. Uh, we're working closely with uh, our Egyptian partners on this agenda because obviously a lot of what we got over the line in Glasgow uh, then has to be uh, delivered at uh, at uh, COP27, but then also beyond that, there's a whole range of work programs that are taking place, um, and. Um, uh, you know, the, 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 that work is, is vital. Uh, clearly, every COP uh, then uh, is a stepping stone for the next COP. Uh, so we very much hope that uh, we will see more progress uh, 
uh, in Sharm el-Sheikh. Uh, look, I mean, I, I, you know, I always hesitate from, um, you know, telling people how uh, they ought to lead. I mean, I, let, let me give you my own own experience from from uh, COP26, which is that uh, this was the first COP that I had ever been to. Uh, you know, I'm not, uh, uh, at least historically, a sort of climate warrior. My, my own background is banking. Uh, I was our business and energy minister uh, when I took on uh, this, this role full time. Um, the one thing that uh, I felt was incredibly important as part of this process was to build uh, consensus. And that's why, uh, you know, my team engaged with, uh, uh, you know, countries all around the world. It's why, for me, it was so important to visit as many countries as possible last year. As I said, you know, I, I visited almost 40 countries um, uh, over a sort of eight, nine month period. And it was about listening. Because I think, um, you know, there are um, uh, countries which are in different positions here. Uh, there are those uh, developed nations. Uh, there are those that are developing nations which, um, you know, want to grow. And one of the recognitions I think that we have to have is that um, you cannot say to a developing country that, uh, you know, I'm sorry, you must curb your growth uh, because that is somehow going to keep emissions down. I think the answer is to support countries with green growth. Uh, I mean, if I give you a statistic from the UK, over the last 30 years, we've managed to grow our economy, uh, our GDP by around 80%, and yet we've also cut emissions by 40%. So I think supporting countries uh, is going to be really vitally important. And uh, you know, as I said, from a, from a leadership point of view, it is about listening and building consensus uh, as a COP presidency. That's something that uh, we sought to do. And I think, you know, those who, who watched COP26 uh, will have seen that um, the final few hours were actually pretty tense. Um, and the reason that we were able to get uh, this historic deal over the line is because we had collectively with other countries built the trust over the last uh, two years. Uh, and just in terms of businesses, uh, what I would say is that, you know, please um, walk the walk, right? You're making commitments make sure you deliver on them, work with your suppliers, and actually give the message to uh, governments around the world that business is willing to lead. Uh, and frankly, if business uh, is saying that to governments, you're going to get much more progress with governments also then um, uh, you know, deciding that, that business is behind them in this uh, green growth agenda. Yeah, I think, you know, business is saying, well, it is what it is, is not going to fly anymore. I think people are actually going to start saying, okay, well, let's go. We know you do, you know, going green is good for business. Um, and we know that, you know, zebras can change their spots. People who said one thing one day have decided, you know, we're all in. We realize this is good for business. We can move forward and it's good for our partners and members and everything. So, um, Kim Huey, I know you've addressed climate and sustainability um, in a number of angles throughout your career. You know, what, what's your advice to, to some leaders out there? Maybe there are people, you know, in the tech sphere or in crypto or in, you know, traditional business or in NGOs. What would be some of your advice to them for the next stages? I think first we have to be optimistic. We have to dare to dream of a better future for ourselves. You know, um, I was speaking to some scientists from the polls. Working in the North and South Pole is difficult for them, and they speak about uh, eco-anxiousness, right? Um, and I think this is also quite pervasive among corporate executives, uh, public sector leaders, right? Especially those dealing with climate sustainability issues. Uh, the challenge is immense, it's highly complex. 
but I think in situations such as this, we also need to maintain a very healthy state of mind, right? Uh, dare to dream, uh, and and to so that we are in a good position to deal with the issues, right? Uh, and to take it a step at a time, in a good direction, right? Uh, we we want to take care of the environment, but this transition path uh, is is a journey. Right, uh, we also need to take care of lives, livelihoods, uh, jobs at the same time. Right, so there are many things that we're trying to solve, but we just need to be directionally moving and ideally accelerating as we move. The second thing that I would highlight is that uh, I think this is also a, a moment to harness innovation. I mean, the human 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 being has a huge capacity to innovate, especially in times of uh, critical challenges. Uh, within the, the forum, we've actually launched a open source platform uh, called Uplink that actually allows innovators to, uh, we crowdsource ideas from innovators, from solving problems of plastic waste to reforestation efforts. In fact, just yesterday, we announced the winners of uh, in India where we had launched a trillion tree uh, challenge. And the innovations came in all form, right? Uh, from simple ideas to recycling agricultural waste to, into packaging material, to scientific ones where you can actually use fungi to bind uh, the roots of plants to in enhance uh, plant nutrient intake, which is also a good form of carbon uh, storage. So what we really want to do is to launch a bit of an ecopreneur revolution, right? Uh, use that energy uh, and, and to, to, to want to make things happen into something very positive for ourselves. Right. The last thing is that I think at moments like this, we also need to continue to build partnerships. It is a global challenge. None of us can do it alone, and we are much stronger together. Right. Uh, we we have uh, convened various communities highly committed to climate action. The youth global leaders, uh, CEO climate leader champions, uh, friends of nature, friends of ocean, so on and so forth. Right. Uh, and right now we are also starting to look at how we can uh, engage the regions. Right, uh, regional stakeholders and partners who would actually be closer to the ground and they can help drive execution uh, and success stories. Uh, and the other area is also how we can actually continue to convene closed-door conversations where we can talk about difficult issues right, uh, and address them right, uh, on a sectoral basis. Uh, one of the most recent dialogues we've launched is around the oceans, Ocean 100 Dialogues. Right, uh, to create spaces for companies engaged in the maritime shipping industries uh, to discuss and work together uh, to build a, a, a future together. Well, I'd like to thank both of my guests, um, Alex Sharma, thank you for joining us from London, Kim Hui Neo, thank you for joining us here in the studio in Geneva, and thank you to our audience. Uh, it's been a pleasure, and we hope that you've enjoyed this special edition of.